0: Morning, how's everybody doing? Good. Happy Fourth of July. I see some tired faces. Um, first one I saw was in the mirror this morning, so I'm with you. Um, look, uh, turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter nine. Ezra nine. We're going to be in nine and ten today. Uh, going to read extensively from nine, some from ten as well, to to try to get uh, a healthy understanding, a grasp of what is taking place in the life of God's people, and then what that means for us. Um, before we do that, I just want to take a moment uh, to, to recognize, uh, look, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of praying in, in our services for, for different groups of people, folks that are, are missionally engaging in something, that are going to a place to proclaim the gospel, folks uh, that are going on trips, and, and today is, is one of those days as well. Uh, we have kids that are going to Centricids Kids Camp this week. Any kids in here going to camp? One? All right. Look, Levi, you're doing it. All right. It's going to be fun, man. I'm really, really excited for you. Uh, Hey, do you want to walk up here and let me pray for you, or do you want to sit in your seat? You want to sit in your seat? Okay, that's okay. We're going to let it happen. Kids get to pick. Um, adults have to come, but kids get to pick. Uh, look, we just want to take a moment uh, to recognize that, that we've got children uh, that are going to a camp this week, and t- they're going to encounter something very similar to what our students do. Uh, dynamic worship experience, new friendships, uh, new relationships, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and look, we, we want to pray for them. We want to pray that God would do an incredible work in the hearts of these children. We're going to have children that go that, that have, a, have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to have children that go uh, that, that have not yet come to know Jesus. So, so we want to take an opportunity uh, to pray for these kids now. Uh, really, really excited uh, for Levi, for you, buddy, and then all the folks that are going to this. It's going to be a blast. Let's just take a moment uh, and pray together. God, we love, we love children um, God, we're so thankful for, um, for those of us that are parents, that the children that you've entrusted into us and our opportunity to shepherd them, to love them, to disciple them, to minister the gospel to them, and just to see, um, God, your image in them, and how you've fearfully and wonderfully made them. Father, they are a beautiful depiction uh, of how you view us. Uh, and so this morning, Father, for the, the children that are a part of Double Oak Community Church, um, here in Chelsea and in Mount Laurel as well, Father, through there are these kids that are, that are going to a camp to experience you and engage you through your word, um, God, through the relationships they build, Father, I pray that first you would protect them, um, God, that you would keep them safe, and then, Father, ultimately that you would draw them to yourself. Uh, for, for those children that don't know you, that they would come to know and experience Jesus. Father, for those that, that have a relationship with you through your son, um, God, would you enrich it? Would you make it uh, sweet and beautiful uh, to them to, to recognize the love that you have for them and may that grow that relationship? Father, may we be found faithful. May we be a church uh, that ministers uh, to children and recognizes the way that you love Um, those who've been created in your image. Um, God, let us do that. Let us be that kind of church. I pray you'll do that work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Ezra 9, uh, excited to dive in uh, with you guys this morning. Look, uh, just just a little bit of recap. Uh, I, I think uh, and I look out here and I see a number of faces who have largely been with us throughout this series. Uh, the series is called Return, Rebuild, Renew. What, we, what we've seen uh, as we're looking into the books of both Ezra and Nehemiah kind of remind you of week one we talked about this. Uh, historically, this is one unified work. Ezra and Nehemiah is really one story that's compiled together uh, a very important chapter in the history of God's people. We've seen uh, Israelites and and exiles, a remnant of, of Israel, that has returned to Jerusalem. They have come back to the land after years of exile, which Jeremiah prophesied. Now they come back to the land. They come back to a place where a temple has been destroyed to rebuild to restore the temple, to to recover in many ways identity of who they are as God's people. That's what's happening in this story. And so we've seen them return. We've seen under under the command and the guidance of all of these pagan kings how God has worked in their hearts to truly develop and cultivate not only a place but his people a people with a renewed love for him, a people with a renewed sense of worship, a people that are, are becoming, it seems, the Israel that God intended, that he longed for. Um, there was opposition that we encountered and we saw in, in chapters 4 through 6 how, how there are kings that, 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 and people that ultimately wanted to thwart the movement of God's people, and yet God has continually renewed them, and they have thrived even through opposition. And now, today, in chapters nine and ten, we're going to see some really, really challenging things. Um, and here's here's kind of the central theme. Um, here's what's happening. Ezra, this person that that as we talked about last week in in 7 and 8 that has emerged, Artaxerxes urges Ezra and and commands Ezra ultimately to go to this land and to reestablish, to reinstitute Israel as God's people through temple worship, through obedience to the law. This pagan king commands him, commands him to, to rebuke those that aren't following God's law. Why does he do that? Part of this is very political in nature. Artaxerxes and these kings, uh, they want Persia to last a little longer than Babylon. <laughs> they want their kingdom to thrive. And they see Israel's faithfulness as a part of that. To allow this culture, to allow God's people to rebuild, to renew. Ezra is one we found last week who is faithful to God's Word. He studies God's Word. He does God's Word, and he teaches God's Word. We saw last week his preparation to come, and we're going to look into chapters 9 and 10 today and see him coming to this land, seeing this place, and being destroyed, being heartbroken about what he finds there. So here's the central theme of these two chapters. Ezra's looking to the teaching of the Torah, the teaching of the Torah, of God's law, to discover what covenant faithfulness looks like in his cultural context. That's what's happening. And we're going to see today that this has implications, it has applications in this very day for you and I, just as it did for him then. So let's look into Ezra chapter 9. We're going to read read chapter 9, which sounds daunting, I know, but it's really, really important for us to see these scriptures. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn to Ezra 9. If you do not, we're going to have it on the screen here for you. This is Ezra 9 chapter 9 in its entirety it's verses 1 through 15 and then right after that we're going to jump over and read 10 1 through 5 it says this after these things had been done the officials approached me and said the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites the Hizzites the Perizzites the Jebusites the Ammonites the Moabites the Egyptians and the Amorites For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Faithlessness, excuse me. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, "O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant And to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, Seeing that you, O God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, or it is today, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And this is Ezra, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. It says this, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And when he says the counsel of my Lord, read that as he's speaking of Ezra. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law, arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose, and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a long passage. It's challenging, I know, at times in moments to, to read something that long. I don't know what your morning has been like. Maybe it's been wild. Maybe it's been crazy. Maybe you didn't have some of that delicious McClooney coffee yet. But uh, if you have, look, I, I, I think you're awakened into the gravity of this situation, of what is taking place in this moment. You have Ezra, who has come, come by command in a a judicial, in a political way from Artaxerxes to to reestablish Israel, to reestablish God's people. And he does that out of fear of God's retribution. That's why Artaxerxes does it. And yet God uses it, works it in the heart for his people to come into this place to rebuild, to, to become the Israel that God longs for them to be. And yet we come to this place where we recognize that all of these people in, in Israel, or, or a number of them, first and foremost, we see its 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 princes, its leaders, it's those that are those that are at the forefront of the people of Israel, in both political but also very spiritual ways, these people have taken foreign wives. Now that doesn't sound terrible to the human ear immediately and look contextually it's hard for us to recognize this in a number of ways but One of the key elements that that we need to see when we look at the scriptures as a whole is Malachi, a prophet who, before this, but talks about Israel and what they're living in and what they're undergoing. He he describes that, especially if you look into chapter 2 of Malachi, you picture these exact people that Malachi speaks of, these Israelites as one who had divorced. They divorced their wives. They divorced wives of Israel and had married foreign women. They're coming into a place and they're taking on the elements, the cultural attributes, the cultural life of the place they inhabit rather than infusing that place with the life of God. Here's the problem. Um, I want to read from, and and I'm going to do this today uh, very particularly and try to quote very accurately uh, some people that are, and I do this every week, but people that are a lot smarter than me Uh, People who are very versed in these texts uh, historically. Uh, One is is an Anglican theologian and a a priest and minister uh, by the name of H.G.M. Williamson. And and he does a really good job of getting to the core of the problem. What is happening in this moment? And this is what he says. He says, the substance of the confession, of Ezra's confession, is this. Is that some members of the religious community, their spiritual leaders, had both married, so they separated from their wives taking foreign ones and adopted some of the religious practices of the rest of the population. So these would have been Jews whose families had previously returned from exile. So when you see these people come back, he's describing people that came back with, with and, and, and among Zerubbabel. People that are, that are reconstructing, that are relaying the temple foundation, as we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 2. It's these people, along with those who were never sent... Into exile. These are those who were a part of northern kingdom, or those people that at time may have been captured or or taken by Assyrians and yet just just intermingled their life, their culture with those people. It's these folks um, and those that return from Babylon when they arrive. This is the issue. This is not just that that they've that they've married poorly. It's not just that, that they are, have done something that is, that is a cultural faux pas for Israel. That ultimately is not the case at all. Here, here's the thing that we can understand through the canon of Scripture. Intermarriage is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, and 2,000-plus and, and years replaced from these moments, we, we celebrate that. We've all married likely people, even if, if we've married people that are of close or very same ethnicity as We have very different backgrounds, very different places, very different heritage from a number of places, and that's a beautiful thing because it reflects the universality of the body of Christ. Different backgrounds and ethnicities joined in covenant marriage. Um, It's important to note that marriage with non-Israelites was not prohibited in the Torah. This is not something that God specifically said don't do. And here's a couple of examples. Abram to Hagar, Genesis 16, Joseph to Aseneth in Genesis 41, and Moses to Sipporah. You see that in Exodus 2. But at the core of this intermarriage is something that God has been trying to teach his people from the very beginning. And it's this. There is a danger of adopting other religions, diluting and unpurifying worship to God as you take on the identity, not just the cultural, but the religious identity of those who are outside Israel. God does forbid that kind of marriage. Um, we're going to look at some very specific examples in relationship to these verses. Look at that list you find in Ezra 9-1. You find this list of Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Um, These people, Ezra looks back to the history of God's people, and he interprets the Torah. He's looking at God's law in his unique moment, to see how God's people were called to live before and some of the struggles and issues that they face. Look at these groups. Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Look at uh, Deuteronomy 23.3. Dennis, can we pull that one up? It's Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Um, here we go. It says this no ammonite or moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever that's Deuteronomy 3 33 3. and then look, let's look to Leviticus 18 1 through 5 it says this and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the people of Israel and say to them I am the Lord your God you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt Where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's happening. You see the connection between these groups of people in Ezra and also in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So you see in Deuteronomy, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and Leviticus, the Egyptians, and Canaanites. What is being drawn out here, what Ezra is communicating, is that these people, the people of the land, the people in and around Jerusalem that are being intermarried with, they are people that are like Canaanites. They're like Egyptians. They're like Amorites and Moabites, people who not, not, not didn't adopt the God of Israel, not didn't, didn't revere Yahweh, but just not as much as other things, but truly have a religion that is impure to the point of, and, and we're going to get to some of this in a few moments, and so uh, th- this is sensitive, but, but ultimately sacrifice of children. Horrible abominations, awful things. You need to recognize and you need to understand that that this is not racial prejudice that we see in this text. Very clearly, you need to hear that. This is not a a prejudice where, where God says, Israel is better than those. Here's the reality. that As far back as Abraham, people outside of Israel have been a part of God's people, have been grafted into God's people. It is not nationality. That Ezra is concerned with. He's concerned with devotion to God. That is the focus, that is the principal core of the challenging issue that we find in this text. The issue is that he is dealing with a people who are not just marrying someone from a different place and maybe they came to dinner with mom and dad and they weren't to write home about, all right? That's not what this is. This is a group. Of people who have firmly resisted the statutes, resisted the commands, they've resisted the acknowledgement of Yahweh. Um, so that is the connection that Ezra is making. He's seeing these people, they're the people of the land, as it says in 9 1, their religious practices as an abomination. They look like these practices that these people have held before. Look also into Ezra 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 2. 9, 2. I think we've got that one. Great. It says, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. And it says this, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then also Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people God holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, there's something really particular that's happening here. Our translation, we're, we're reading from the English Standard Version. That's what we do every week uh, at Double Oak Community Church. And so you might have something different before you. It might say something different than holy race before you. Again, I want to be very clear uh, that the that word race ultimately doesn't characterize a group of people by their ethnicity or the color of their skin. You need to know that. It actually, uh, the, the, the closest thing we could say in the Hebrew is it means holy seed. It means holy seed. It means, in this moment, the line from which God's people has descended. Remember last week when we looked into this picture of even uh, Ezra being hearkened back to and connected to Aaron, being connected to Moses, this picture of this lineage of God's people who are characterized not by blood, but by heart. They're not characterized by a flag, but their father. That's how these people are characterized. This is their identity. And what's happening in this moment is Ezra recognizes and notices that this race, this seed, God's people, has mixed itself with the people of the lands. Why is that a problem? Look at the Deuteronomy portion. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Why? Because they're a holy people. God has chosen his people to be for for him, for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on earth, this is not some exclusive thing where God only loves Israel. It is through Israel that God will love the world. You and I are sitting here in this place today experiencing the proclamation of the gospel, the truth of who God is. And what he's done in the life of his people and his son in his life, death and resurrection. That you and I might benefit. That you and I might be drawn into God's family by his spirit through his son. Now connected to God. Have a relationship with him because of what he did through Israel. It's through Abraham that the nations are blessed. Blessed. That a nation that, that on a day unlike any other the day of the year that we celebrate our nation, that a nation like this could be blessed, not merely for political freedom, but for spiritual freedom. To be redeemed more, from more than just tyranny of another nation, but to be redeemed from ourselves. Redeemed from the sin and the brokenness and the darkness and, quite frankly, the evil that's in our hearts, that we might be reconciled to God. God uses Israel to bring us to the place where we can know him. He is very clear that the consequence of of intermarriage, the consequence of intermarriage is, is, is not is really just a systemic of the bigger problem. These people are failing to be loyal to God. They're failing to trust Him. Um, that word intermingle is used in a psalm at Psalm 106, 35 to 46. Uh, and, it, and it really gets to the point of this. Um, and, and you're going to see it through these uh, 11 verses. Uh, psalm 106, 35 to 46. This is a story of what is happening in this moment. And we're going to see time and time again it's the story of Israel. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed. There's there's that word again. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Does that sound familiar? Does that look familiar in this story? When you look at Babylon, when you look at Persia, when you look at what Israel has walked through, their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this moment, we're seeing the consequence of intermingling. Not just racially, but religiously, devotionally, giving oneself, cracking the door to, to, other, to other things. Yahweh plus will soon become, where is Yahweh. That's, that's the picture that is presented here. And I recognize it, and, and of course in God's sovereignty today is the day the children are in the room. Um, uh, so, so I know there's some heavy stuff, but, but the reality of what's happening in this moment is there were evil, horrible things that are happening with what Ezra will continually refer to as the people of the land. And as someone who loves the law as someone who sees God's law as, as uh, I think sometimes we, we see it and we say it in beautiful but childish ways, right? Like when, when we think of it being a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, sometimes those words are cute to us, particularly in the context that we grew up understanding and knowing those words, but the reality is that that light is beautiful and light and that darkness is truly dark truly dark dark to the point of these type of acts where innocent blood is shed pagan idols are worshiped and Ezra is heartbroken that these things are happening now look at Ezra chapter 9 verse 11 it says this 9 verse 11 Uh, For we have forsaken your commandments, says, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you were entering to take possession of, uh, that you're taking possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. So that is what is happening here. And then Deuteronomy 18.9, that word abominations that we just saw in Ezra 9.11 is the same that we see here. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And here's what's happening in this moment. Ezra is, is confessional on behalf of these people. He is praying deep prayers of repentance. Um, look, I don't know about you, but I have a beard, and so when you pull a hair out of this thing, It hurts. All right, a lot of us, some of us have hair in here on the top of our head. Some of us remember days when we did, right? Uh, but but ultimately, when you pull that hair from your head, as it talks about here, it is incredibly painful. These are these are depictions of the pain that Ezra is in. Here's why: because Ezra before. Churchill would ever have the opportunity to say it. Here's what Ezra is saying. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I'm not trying to just make a historical interjection into the text, but this is ultimately what is happening. Ezra is teaching the Word of God to people, teaching the Torah law that God has given them. He's not giving them something new that they don't know in the teaching. And he's not revealing to them in their history, their history of unfaithfulness, something that they don't know that they've done. These are people who literally have walked out of exile and seemingly want to walk right back into it by choosing the things that they do that got them there in the first place. And then, as we saw in chapter 10, this radical change happens. This ugly, messy, Radical change. In chapter 10, verse 2, uh, you look and you see the picture uh, of foreign women, of people of the land. Uh, we've dwelled on this a little bit, but the reality is that foreign was a common word to describe non-Israelites, but you really only see it elsewhere in, in Solomon's stories. Uh, Mackey describes this in First Kings 11. Um, that's echoed and what we'll see will be Nehemiah 13. Uh, it's, it's because of marriages to foreign women that, that Solomon does not trust, that he does not lean on the Lord. He's loved by God, and he's made king over all Israel, and yet his, his trouble is, is in these marriages, these intermarriages, not because of a person's ethnicity, but because of their devotion to other gods. That is the core, that's the crux of what is happening here. And so what happens? Look at chapter 10, verse 3, and you see this, um, this hard, awful word, send away all the women and children by the counsel of my Lord. And again, that, that, that phrase, when, when Shechaniah proposes this divorce decree, because that's what's happening, asking Israel to, to annul, to divorce, to be done with all of these marriages in which they've intermingled, He says, send away all the women and children by the counsel of my Lord, so he's appealing to Ezra, and of those who tremble at the command of our God, and according to the Torah, let it be done. Um, So, Here's the the thing. One, that that word there for send away is not the standard term that the Torah would use for divorce. So when you look into Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, and you look at uh, divorce law in in God's God's covenant law, that's not the word that you find. Um, So it really complicates the matter to some degree. Um, but it's very apparent that Ezra is, is under deep conviction, feels deep shame, that he would describe the iniquity uh, of his people, of God's people being higher than their heads, that their guilt would be up to the heavens, that this people that God has so deeply, consistently loved, they're in this, they're in this place of deep shame because they have turned from him. And this is the consequence. This is this radical moment in which... Ezra, one who knows the law, who studies the law, who does the law, who lives the law, who teaches the law, allows Shechaniah to propose this, and a number of others tremble. They come along with it, and then this divorce de- decree takes place in Israel, and, and these, these foreign women and children are sent away. They're sent away. Now, from a historical perspective, I, I do want to let you know, um, look, again, we have 2,000 plus years of history and, and a gospel that teaches us that we, we love, we care for, uh, we cherish women and children. We cherish all people, but, but we cherish women and children. So when we look at a passage like this, You probably go to the place where I do. You feel terribly uncomfortable. And you don't understand how this fits into God's great story. How can this black eye, this seemingly big stain, fit into what God is doing? I want to point out to you a couple of very specific things that even as we read, we tend to overlook. I tend to overlook it, reading it again and again. God never commands this. God does not command to Ezra for for this to happen. Shekinah proposes it, and Ezra says, yes, this is what we're going to do. And Israel takes an oath, and it begins with leaders, and then it goes down until the larger community. There's a proclamation made where this is what is going to happen for the people of Israel. As far back as Malachi, we see God hating divorce. And yet in this moment, God in his sovereignty allows this to take place in the midst of his people. How can that be? The challenge with the text like this is to recognize that this fits into the greater picture of the people and the history of who God is. And what's happening in this moment is in an imperfect way. Ezra seeking to follow the law. He, and look, at the core, there's no, there's no prescription for this in the Torah. Ezra, in his context, I believe, is truly seeking to follow God's word and obey it. There's no letter to obey, but he's seeking to obey the spirit of the law. And what does he come to find? That God's people are impure. That they're defiled and that this Israel that God has created to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light to the nations, Ezra sees the light going out. He sees a people who are failing to be a blessing. And then this broken consequence, this radical effect takes place. Here's how this fits into the picture of what God does in the life, and the history of his people for their sake and for ours. If Israel fails to be Israel, if there are not people that live under the law, if Israel is not only polluted but diluted into nothingness, where where they don't trust God, we don't get to be where we are today. We don't get to be where we are today. How do we know that? The law had to be preserved for an understanding of who Jesus Christ himself was. Who is Jesus? Born of a virgin and born what? Under the law. This is who Jesus is. And this is how God transforms the world through him that he would come from through this line of David, this root of Jesse, this holy seed that's described even in this To redeem people. In the midst of this moment, Ezra is not concerned with what looks to be political or or racial or personal identity. He's concerned with devotion of the people of God. And in a broken way, he does this radical thing. This proclamation of divorce goes through and And I would argue that that this looks, in a human way, absolutely terrible and atrocious. And in some ways, it absolutely is. And yet, in its midst, God will use this to purify Israel. God will use this to draw Israel to himself, to be a people that truly reflect his law, that reflect his love, so that these foreign wives, these people of other nations could experience and see the goodness of God, that they would come to love and understand God, that they would come to follow Yahweh. Um, I, I also want to be very clear that, that historically what we read here in sending away, um, we, we just don't have, uh, I don't know, you, you may read that differently than me, but I read send away and I'm looking for more information. <laughs> I'm looking for a deeper understanding of what really happened here. What really, really happened. One, you know, we can know historically that, that uh, being sent away from this case, would one, th- these women uh, would have provision to be married again. That would be an option for them. But two, it is not, it is not likely, through a number of people who have done incredible scholarly research, list of whom is, is, is too large and too broad to cover in this moment, but um, I would encourage you, um, with the fact that, that these, these people were not truly just abandoned, they would go back to the places that they were from. They would go back to their hometowns. They would go back to these places, and life would start anew for them, even in the midst of pain. Anybody else sensing the messiness in this yet? Um, I asked everybody I knew to preach this week, and nobody would take me up on it. Um, these are hard things. Um, here's what happens you see this Jewish community, they find themselves in this, this, this challenging situation. As there's commanded by Artaxerxes, they're, they're, they're this people that are searching, they're grappling with political identity. And yet in the midst, God is trying to transform them spiritually into people who love Him. Because of this, Israel had to be redefined. They had to be renewed. They had to be rebuilt. Not just physically. We see elements of that emerging with the temple and with with altars, with the foundation. All of the things that are being built. We see edifices. We see practical, uh, just aesthetic versions of this physical representations of this in the form of construction, but yet the reality is what's happening in all of Ezra is God is trying to bring his people to himself. They're trying to be molded and shaped and redefined by their identity rebuilt as the people of Yahweh. That is what is taking place here. And there's a deep danger that that would cease to exist if they continued on the path that they were in with this culture. So there's this radical decision that's made. And Ezra seeks to follow the Lord, and he seeks to trust his word. And yet we're left with an imperfect result. A couple of things at play here. Um, big takeaways, alright? Here's the first one, and this is really important. These chapters that we read are incredibly descriptive. They're they're a descriptive picture. They're a depiction of what happened to a people in a place at a time. What we see in Ezra 9 and 10 is not prescriptive. What I mean by that is this is not giving us instruction to, to divorce those, even if we've trusted in the Lord, those who have an unbelieving spouse. If you're married and your spouse does not trust the Lord, what would Paul say? Look at 1 Corinthians 7. The goal is is to to love them in such a way that they would turn to Christ, that they would love Christ. On this side of the cross, we are not meant to be separate from a spouse, even one who's unbelieving. We should long to see them be reconciled even through a relationship of love. Here's the next thing. God sovereignly working in the midst of brokenness. God sovereignly working in the midst of brokenness. God will preserve Israel even through this remnant of a remnant of a remnant. And through that line, Jesus Christ will come. He'll come, and he'll draw people unto himself, and they will have eternal life through him. Um. Look, I, I can't like in some ways in these moments, and and I'm disappointed in myself for it, but I can't help but sing Rascal Flatts. Right, uh, and that's never a good place to be, I don't think. Um, but but look, I, I mean. It, I think a number of you, myself included, because it is catchy, right? Like you sang in your car or in the shower. I know you. Your people. You've done this. That God blessed the broken road, right? Um, I want to be very clear and say that analogy pales in a number of ways, um, not just the way that's written, but also maybe who's singing it. But um, look, that is a human cultural. Relative depiction of these two people that God that God has brought together, that He's joined together. I want you to see, I want to see God have mercy on us and help us see the bigger picture that's at play here. That that little human one-on-one relationship that that, that might be described in something like a rascal flat song, right? is a very small picture of this bigger, more grandiose picture of what God is doing in his relationship with his people. And God works in the midst of our brokenness and our messiness and our pain and our intent to love and to trust and to follow and to seek and obey him and still be left with muddy results at best. God's sovereignty is at work. What's the picture of God's sovereignty at work in this? In all this brokenness, in, in, in a desire uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a willingness to say we're going to divorce all these people that we've married. So now twice divorced, because we divorced our, our wives, our, our wives that God had given us in Israel. Now we've taken people to the land and now we're being forced to repent of this and return back. And so now divorce is what has been decreed to a people. What's the evidence of this thing all working to the good? All working to the good. What does that look like? Where's the Romans 8 piece of this? It's sitting all around you in this room. Because through the brokenness of Israel, God has yet drawn his people to himself. Israel is is purified and chastened. The number becomes less, and yet Jesus comes through it. Here's the other thing. Um, In this series, I love God's Word. I know a number of you that do as well. Um, It is very challenging to look at these texts and say, what does this mean for me? like like what Michael I, I appreciate the history I have got some understanding of who Ezra is his character and what he's done what what does that mean for me if if I if I were to give you the elevator speech if I were to give you the pitch it would be this you're not looking at words when you look at this you're looking in a mirror you're looking into the mirror And that same mirror that I looked in this morning, and I was disappointed at the result, quite honestly, because I felt like the bags were a lot larger this morning than they usually are. Um, This text is a mirror that reflects who we are. Anybody in here able to sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, because you felt it? Because you've lived it? This week or last week or the week before. Or you look back into your past and you see these messes, these broken things. These things where there were oftentimes good intent and intent to follow the Lord and it still ended up terribly. Or times where you saw that you didn't follow the Lord in any way and yet he spared you amazingly by his grace. God's word Ezra is a picture of a people, and that people is not different from you. I would go as far to say is they are you to a large degree. They're me to a large degree. They're people who constantly turn, and so we have to ask ourselves these questions. What are our idols? What are the practices in our life that cause us to turn away from the Lord? And I want to be very clear and say that, that I know that these abominable practices that, that are being described of Canaanites and Amorites and Moabites, uh, the, 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 the Egyptians, that's not you. I know that. I know that. But what are the things that are seeping into our lives? The things that are just little things, they're cultural things, they're life things that are turning us away from the Lord. What are those things? We need to be thinking about that. And then look to the example of Ezra and say this. Are we repentant over sin when we're confronted with it? Are we repentant of sin when we're confronted with it? Ezra sees, he comes to the land, he sees what has happened, and he's, he's ripping hair out. wouldn't advise that. Um, He's ripping hair out, he's crying, he's, he's ultimately cut to the core. Are we repentant over our sin? And are we people that would do this? Would we look to the past, even into the hard places, to the broken places, to the painful places, and see how God has yet loved us and redeemed us? Are we those people? This is what we have the opportunity to see at the end of Ezra. And this is an anticlimactic way for a book to end. You get a list of people who've divorced, and then ultimately, like kind of judicial rulings as a result of that. I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of more of a happy ending type person. I like for it to have a bow put on it. And that's not what we get here. And I don't know about you, but I often find myself in those places as well. Just kind of stuck in the middle of the story and wondering how it's all going to turn out. God doesn't abandon his people. God doesn't leave his people. God delivers his people, even through the brokenness and the mess um, I want to say this as we close today. Um, I'm really proud to be an American. I'm incredibly thankful uh, for what um, I get to enjoy as a citizen uh, of this country. Uh, and, and look, I think for a number of us that were at the Big Kaboom last night, um, one, I, don't, I hope you'll like, still be near each other uh, and you'll not like, hide and run away because we were either uh, the most recognizable or the most uh, unbeloved people um, at the big kaboom last night, there were bubbles everywhere, a um, lot of bubbles. So uh, I thought about, you know, changing the logo to Bubble Oak Community Church this morning. Couldn't get uh, couldn't get a lot of people to go with me on that. Well, look, we had a great time out there. And look, you know, I just I sat there like a number of you with people I love and watched fireworks go off and think about how God has blessed us and He's blessed. This place and he's blessed this nation. And I think about how we would long um, to, to show our appreciation to those who have served. Um, and here's one of my favorite things about being an American I don't deserve it. I don't, I don't deserve it. There's, there's no reason for me to be able to enjoy the freedoms that I have as an American. But that points to a much bigger picture. That's a small thing in comparison with the fact that I don't deserve to enjoy God's grace. And resurrection life through his son. There's nothing I've done to deserve it. And you haven't either. And yet God has drawn us to himself. God has allowed us to to see our brokenness. To see these messes. And to turn and to trust him. In these moments. um, I'd love it if if our worship team would come as we close. and, And just take a moment to respond. To be thankful for what God has given us. And how even America and all of its brokenness and messiness affords us these, these freedoms and these opportunities. Opportunities like this to worship and to gather. And yet that's just a picture that points to something so much deeper, so much grander, so much better. That God has given us freedom, not just from the tyranny of people, but the depths of the brokenness of sin. That God has redeemed us. Could we be people that are thankful for this nation and our opportunity to be a part of it and yet even more thankful, deeply thankful, that as we sang earlier, truly what characterizes us is that we are citizens of heaven through Jesus Christ. I'm going to be up front. I'd, I'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Um, there are folks in the back, Brian at back in the back, that would love to pray with you, talk with you. I'd love for you to just take a few moments to bow your head and, and pray, and then we're going to respond uh, as, as the Lord works in song. Pray with me. God, our, our lives are characterized with moments that are, God, they're, they're just not beautiful. They're just not what we thought life would look like. They're not what we intended. And God, in your sovereignty, in your providence, in your mystery, there are these times where where we seek to serve you and we try to trust you. And ultimately, God, end in this place of messiness and failure. And Father, there are times when we have no way out for the wrong that we've done. We we, we haven't pursued you at all, and yet we experience, God, just, just your lavish love for us. God, will we be a people that looks to your word, um, God, and in it finds a mirror? People from different times and different places, yet that had these same hearts that were prone to wander. God, the same hearts that we have and feel. Um, God, would would you take us to yourself? God, would you turn our eyes, our hearts to you? Would you help us remember who you are and what you've done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son? And would that lead us to to purge our lives of the things that distract us from you, that tempt us from loving you, that keep us away from communion with you? And God, would we be set apart for the sake of the world, that they might know you and experience that love? In Christ's name, amen.